Talo for Lava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Wau Okoroi Hawkins. Coming up first. Families have come out and said, why should we uh, allow our husbands to go into those provinces and there's no guarantee of safety? The family of a murdered Papua New Guinea policeman demands government reign in the lawlessness in Hela province. Also, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about contraception. Uh, how does somebody manage their sexual health? A new report in Solomon Islands reveals the severe pressures women face when dealing with unwanted pregnancies. And later on... I know now that's what comes with it, but I wasn't thinking about the stuff when I had done what I did at the Games. Niue's first Commonwealth Games medalist has just arrived back in New Zealand after his first ever trip to the country he represented. The family of a murdered Papua New Guinea policeman, along with other police families, say the government must reign in the lawlessness in Hela province. The families detail a series of murders and wounding of police in Hela, or perpetrated by Hela warlords outside of the province, going back 20 years, for which they say no one has been convicted. Hela province was very much the centre of the huge ExxonMobil LNG project, and our PNG correspondent Scott Wyde says this has had a major destabilising effect on Hela custom. Don Wiseman spoke to Mr Wyde, beginning with the concerns raised by the families of police personnel. There's always been, over the last 20 years at least, where a lot of resources has been pumped into particularly the Enga province and Hela province because of the high rate of crime that's happened in, in those areas. And a lot of time police go on deployments that last for long periods, you know, months upon months. And that puts a lot of pressure on the families and understandably so the families have come out and said why should we uh, allow our husbands to go into those provinces and stay for long periods and there's no guarantee of safety. So I I think that was the main thrust of the message that came from the protests after uh, senior constable Kalimda's murder. In their petition to the Prime Minister they have essentially given him an ultimatum. He's got to sort things out. They've also talked about how no one has ever been charged over these various offences, the murders of half a dozen policemen and vicious assaults and so on. The list is endless of what's happened in Hella particularly. Yes, that has been a big concern for both families and the servicemen themselves, servicemen and women themselves, because they feel that while there's a lot of attention when the event that happens, the follow-up isn't there and the arrests aren't made, even though there's big statements being made in Parliament and outside of Parliament about justice being served and the perpetrators will be brought to justice and will be jailed. There's very little follow-up being done. So given that it's the Prime Minister's electorate, the families have said the onus is on the Prime Minister to demonstrate that he can actually deliver on those statements that he's made previously, uh, as in the case of the killing of the 16 uh, women and children in in Tagale, in in the Hela province. So he's made those statements. Some of those people are still on the loose. And now with the senior constable Kalimda who's been killed, suspects have been arrested, but whether they'll be progressed through to trial and sentencing 
is a whole different thing. There's a lot of pressure on police when issues like that happen, uh, also on on politicians and and local leaders. But you know the dynamics are so complex in the province that tribal politics come in, comes into play, national politics comes into play, and and also a whole lot of stuff that happens in in the in that locality. The families talked about warlords being able to operate with impunity. Is that the way you see it? Ella and a lot of other provinces, I'm, I'm not just talking about the highlands, all over Papua New Guinea, there's, there's a huge amount of guns, and I'm saying huge in, in relative terms. In, in some places there's more, in some places less. Major General Singerok, retired Major General Singerok, stated this, and he actually researched and, and produced what's called the Singerok Gun Report and put it before Parliament, and he said... You know, the problem of small arms that we have in Papua New Guinea stands to destabilize systems of government, basically, and and society in general, if we don't uh, act on the recommendations that he made to, to Parliament. To this date, some sections, some recommendations, most of the recommendations haven't been haven't been fulfilled. He's given this report to Parliament. The Parliament hasn't really acted on it. And the problems that he identified have compounded over the last 20, 30 years. Now we've, we're, we're seeing this, you know, as the police family stated, uh, warlords walking around with impunity, basically armed to the teeth. You talk about the destabilising effect of guns, but how destabilising was it for, well, a whole coalition of massive oil companies to move in uh, for the multi-billion dollar LNG project? In a lot of that, of course, or the source of that essentially is in Heller, isn't it? How destabilising was that for the province, for the communities? Don, if you look at the rest of Papua New Guinea, the rest of Papua New Guinea has had at least 200 to 150 years learning to deal with large amounts of cash coming into their society. And and some societies, some communities have had to adjust and have learned to adjust dealing with large amounts of money, like the Western province where the Octedi mine is and Bougainville. Hela has had to do it in 30 years and billions of kina coming into uh, one province, Hela was part of the Southern Highlands, and billions of Kina going into the communities. It's a huge, huge culture shock for them. It actually breaks the traditional governance structures, and the elders who had a lot of power and control and governed their communities have lost much of that power. So today, the person who has a lot of money has a lot of say. So that's that's the situation there. The person who has a lot of money is able to control a, a large number of people through uh, influence gets into power. And and that's not just in Hela province. It's all over Papua New Guinea now. They're oligarchs of a sort, aren't they? <laughs> yes. For the first time, a report in Solomon Islands reveals the perils women there face when dealing with unwanted pregnancies, including unsafe abortion practices. Conducted by the University of Melbourne and the International Planned Parenthood Federation from 2015 to 2018, the study surveyed women across the Solomons to gather their personal experiences with abortion and contraception. Susana Suisuiki has the story. 
The report was recently launched in Honiara by the Solomon Islands Planned Parenthood Association. It highlights the practices and consequences of unsafe abortion in Solomon Islands, documenting a serious public health issue. Contraception use for women of reproductive age was last measured at 27% in 2013 and has decreased over time. IPPF Pacific Director Chris Golden says due to contraception being widely frowned upon, women are given unreliable information, leading to drastic situations upon falling pregnant. There's a lot of uh, misconceptions about contraception, misconceptions about uh, how does somebody manage their sexual health attitudes. For example, one of the ones that we, oh, I remember one of the women that was reached was told that when she had an unwanted pregnancy, her, one of the advice from her family member was to basically climb a tree and jump out of it because that would induce uh, an abortion. That's terrible advice. And this is like you know, the sort of thing that we often work against. Gendered norms and violence restricts women to choose when to start a family. Through focus group discussions, the report noted that women who are married or in a relationship were forbidden to use contraception due to their partner's embedded cultural or religious views. Clinical nurse Hyolin Vozoto says too often women in partnerships neglect their own ambitions. Our most challenge a woman faces in Solomon Islands is decision-making. Decision-making in whatever plans or whatever decision in their home. They always depend on their husband. They never make their own decisions. That's one of the challenges I, I, I see with the woman in Solomon Islands. Unless the mother's life is at stake, abortion remains illegal in Solomon Islands. Participants in the report share their unwanted pregnancies drive women to either seek unsafe termination methods, abandoning the baby, or suicide. President of the National Woman Council, Ella Kahu, says due to the stigma, abortion isn't openly discussed, which she says also poses a risk to women's lives. Abortion here is just not talked about issue. And in itself, it's a life-threatening for young girls or any woman where they engage in, in, engage in that. When we talk about abortion, abortion is done in secrecy. Organizations and health providers are hopeful that the reports will improve government and civil society responses to unwanted pregnancies, as well as invest in more community-based programs that empower women to make more informed choices. New Zealand real estate consumer protection information is now being made available in some Pacific languages. The Real Estate Authority last month released updated consumer guides on the property buying and selling process in seven languages, including in Tongan and Samoan. Joining me is the Authority's Chief Executive and Registrar, Belinda Moffat. Bula, and welcome on Pacific Waves. Belinda, what are these consumer guides and why is it important that people pay attention to them? Well, look, I think it's fair to say that buying or selling a house, and particularly if it's your home, is a really significant transaction. So if a person like a licensed real estate professional is acting on your behalf, then um, government, parliament determined that it was appropriate for there to be a set of regulations just to to support and oversee the conduct of those um, real estate professionals. So that's why the Real Estate Authority, or REA, or Tamana Papa Whenua, um, as we are known, and that's why we were born under the Real Estate Agents Act. So under that act, what we are required to do is protect consumers, promote and protect the interests of consumers, but also to support and um, encourage you know, high standards of conduct by the real estate professionals. And, and to help people with this, you've developed guides can, and that you've also recently translated to Pacific languages. Yes, we have. Yeah, so we've we've refreshed the refreshed guides that we're required to produce under the Act, which is um, that they're there to help inform consumers so they understand the the real estate um, process and they understand important they can have information to make really good decisions. 
But we also wanted to make sure that we make this consumer information available to all consumers in New Zealand. And so that means communicating them to people that may not have English as a first language. Um, it's part of a wider piece of work that we're undertaking to reach diverse communities and we want to reach you know, disabled communities and also um, elderly and other people who may need some further support. Uh, but yes, we've, we've uh, translated them into seven languages. So we've got English, uh, then Samoan, Tongan, Te Reo Māori, Hindi, Simplified Chinese and Korean. Awesome. And in, in your experience with the, the work that you do, do do a lot of people pay attention and do the research, do the groundwork, the due diligence before selling or buying a home? Was this an issue as well in terms of awareness and educating people to be aware of these things? Look, I, education is always key to any, again, significant transaction. Um, there are some consumers who absolutely do put a lot of time and effort into doing their research and due diligence, and others may be coming to the real estate um, environment for the first time. So that's where our guides and also a website that we offer to consumers called settled.govt.nz is a wonderful consumer resource uh, that people can go to to learn about the uh, real estate process. Um, we certainly are saying to people, you do have to do your due diligence before you buy, get a building report, um, make sure you've looked at the council file, take legal advice. And if you're using a real estate professional, you know, ask them questions. Make sure you've really inquired into the property before you buy it. It's a really important step to take. That sounds amazing. And anyone listening that would like to get in touch with you guys, are there other ways they can get in touch? Look, absolutely. If people are needing some general direction about information they need to get to, to access, they can they can contact REA. They can also look at our own website, um, rea.govt.nz. And if they do encounter a problem with a transaction involving a real estate professional, we certainly do encourage them to get in touch with either with the agency concerned um, or they can come to us and we can see if we can assist them in that process. I must say, um, buying a home is a really big step and we want consumers in New Zealand to know that REA is there to, to support them um, and to also support the, the profession to, to meet high standards and to, to do a good job for New Zealanders. Naka, thank you so much for your time. Okay, thank you very much. Niue's first Commonwealth Games medalist has just arrived back in New Zealand after his first ever trip to the country he represented. Duken Totakitoa Williams was born in Auckland. He grew up in Grey Lynn and is the middle child of five siblings. The 23-year-old sports star spoke with Lydia Lewis on his return from Niue, where he received awards, met with family and leaders of the country he has made history for. He said he'd not anticipated the attention his sporting achievements would bring him. I wasn't thinking about the stuff when I had done what I did at the Games. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and that was to at least make history, win a medal. And that's all I was aiming for. But then when I got home and all the other stuff came off, I was like, oh, snap. At least make history, definitely an understatement, because you are the first Commonwealth medalist for Newair, and you yep. had never been there before. But now you have, and what was that like? Oh, it was beautiful. It was um, so I went. To, I it was it was really good there, but I didn't really get to do much because I when I had undergone I had undergone surgery before I left on the Monday or Tuesday. I still got to experience a lot of stuff. Um, meet a lot of my family, meet with lots of beautiful people over there, see all of the beautiful beaches, the border, and just like experience the beautiful lifestyle over there. 
Yeah, tell me about that for people who've never been to Nuer. What really stood out for you? Um, well, it, mine was like staying across across the road from the wharf, walking there every mo- walking there every morning, to, and then just like watching the sunrise, sitting down by the water. Some quiet time after a yep. really fast moving time in your life, I guess. Yeah, stuff moves over there like moves really slow compared to here. Like days over there are really long, but they're they're spent well because it's there's a lot of uh, beautiful beautiful things around. Being back in Auckland now, days have gone days are gone just like that. I wake up, have all these things to do, and before you know it, it's time already to go back to bed. And your village, I understand that you hail from Liku. Did you go there? Liku and Hakupu. Yep. Oh, they they treated um me and my me and my team, my coach um Lolo her son. My father, they treated us with uh, lots of respect and lots of love and real, really, really, really great hospitality. Treated us like kings. On top of that beautiful hospitality, you were awarded the national honours at the 48th Constitution flag-raising ceremony and you were recognised by the government with a special sports recognition. How do you feel wearing those honours? It gives me me lots of joy in that, but... The biggest one for me, like what makes me most happy is that my friends get to see their son achieve something like that. So that's that's what it, that's what it makes me happy about that. Tell me a bit about your parents and what they sacrificed to get you here and to support you. Um, my whole life, they've, they've sacrificed. You never, I never really, what is it? I never really noticed it until I got older and started doing things myself of how much love sacrifices Everything that they put in to help me to be the person I am today, help me to get to the things I needed to get to. Like what they done for me, I could, I don't know, I, I don't think I could repay them for that. But I can with what I'm doing now. I saw on social media a while ago um, a photo that you posted contrasting some tough times that you'd been through um, to where you are now. Do you mind if we talk about that? What and what happened and what trouble you found yourself in and how you got out of that? Uh, yeah, we can talk about that. What happened and, um, yeah, just if we could just start off there. So I, we were at a friend's house that we just moved into. Yeah. And there was about, how many of us? There's about six of us. We're all, we're all brown Pacific Islanders. Some issue, the police came over earlier in the day to ask him about something. And then he, he there was like, no, they, they had the suspicion that we were in the house cooking crack or something. So after that whole time when the house got raided, they found nothing, nothing, they, and we were let go, like, free of charge because what they had thought we were doing there was not what we were doing there. And so, therefore, I got my face put all over the news. My little brother did. My friends did. But then, uh, maybe that same, so that same, so that day that I, we got raided, that next month, I lost my coach. My coach passed away. Oh, my goodness. What? And how then, did that impact you? Uh, to be honest, it was, I was pretty, it was pretty sad to deal with at the time. But I didn't really get to really mourn properly because of I know that before I he's the one who helped, he's the one who started me off boxing. I started boxing with him first, and what I've always what I've always what I've always dreamt of achieving in the sport I haven't done it yet. So I feel like once I achieve that, then I can I find myself. I think I can properly mourn for him. What do you want to achieve? What was the goal that you set out to achieve with with your coach? To become a world champion, at least. 
you know, go through the stages, the Commonwealth Games, Olympic Games, and then fight, climb your ranks, climb through the ranks, and become a world champion. I think once I do that, I think that's when I can give him my thanks. That's me giving my thanks back to him for what he's helped me with, for what he started me off with. Because if it wasn't for him, I would have never been in this position. Paris 2024, are you going to go for gold? Yeah, got to qualify for that, but I, 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 I can do that. Training in progress? Yeah, I know i got it in me to get there. What's your message to young Dukin? Man, don't give up. Don't never, ever, ever give up. And that's what I did, regardless of whatever happens or what anybody does to you, what anybody says to you. Never ever give up, and I still believe, and I still take that with me now. No matter what I've been through or what I go through now, I'll never ever give up. That's specific waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Fafitai telelava tofa soifua.